Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Okay, welcome, Iron Radio listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiologist, and I'm a licensed nutritionist, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. Hey, this is Dr. Mike T. Nelson. I'm the owner of Extreme Human Performance, creator of the Flex Diet Cert, uh, faculty member at the Kerrig Institute, and I'm back home in Chile, Minnesota, from as in El Cuyo, Mexico, skateboarding last week. So Yeah, there's a change of pace for you. Yeah, yeah, it was a little different. We got back, and it had snowed like three different times during the week. So we had left our car outside at one of the airport uh, parking lots in order to get all of our kite bags and stuff down there. And, yeah, we had about a yeah. foot and a half of snow all around the car. And then we just – luckily, we had a brush, but we couldn't quite get to the shovel. So it took us about 20 minutes to dig it out. <laughs> oh, good Lord. Yeah, a little bit of a shock. Yep. Uh, okay, well, let's take a look here at some mail and some news. I think we'll start with the mail, actually. It's just sort of a fun little bit. Um, Mitch actually wrote in, and he said, based on recent strongman discussion, oh, I think he means Highlander, High, mm -hmm. Highland Games discussion, um, is everyone in competitive bodybuilding a tool? <laughs> <laughs> essentially we are talking about how fun the a lot of the highland guys have you know how much fun yeah. they have and uh so i just thought i would answer this quickly i tried to make a point of it when we were discussing it right because we mentioned how occasionally you'll get like mr badass in the corner and you know he's just kind of brooding and acting like he's gonna destroy everybody and it, it, it was funny because uh dan was talking about how that kind of shit's just not going to fly in strongman you know everybody has to have fun and work the crowd and and um so mitch no they're not there's a lot of really cool guys in fact um i don't know what breeds that you know i do think i i look at highland games guys almost more like you know the the laughing vikings you know they have a dispute yeah. they just beat the crap out of each other and whoever's still standing oh you win <laughs> you know and they move on with their lives and you know that kind of stuff and and sometimes there's there is the prima donna element uh, with bodybuilding. Unfortunately, I think the magazines, you know, Mike, you and I were laughing about the like the sunglasses and the fake screaming yeah. at each other, and and there there's occasionally the more immature type. In my experience, Mitch, it's the masters guys that are actually the most fun uh, because you know they've either done it for a long time or maybe they're just older, you know. And let's face it, with changes in technology and nutrition and all the things over the years, a lot of times. And again, this is just my most recent experiences, but the, the guys that were around 40 actually looked better in many ways than a lot of the younger guys. Um, you know, they've got that muscle maturity. They're real hard. Um, but I think the fun thing is, you know, they're helping each other backstage with the fake tan or all the oiling and primping and all the crap that needs to be done um, and just having a little bit more fun with it. So uh, I'm... I might suggest, I mean, this isn't a perfect suggestion, but if you're a garage lifter or something like that, talk to one of the older guys or one of the veterans 
they're usually much cooler about stuff and they can give you some insights and and whatnot but, but no everyone is not a big jerk so yeah <clears throat> i usually find just a handful of people i know that are older and that's that's sport and i've been lucky to meet a fair amount of even some top level especially natural competitors is i think they also realize at that point that let's say if you're even pretty far up the echelon you're probably not making your entire living doing it you know oh, it's right. still probably a very much of a hobby type thing and you can be pretty highly ranked and there's just not that much money in it you know no, so i think they also no. have more of a dose of reality when you're 22 thinking you're going to be the next Mr. Olympia eh, not so much right yeah I appreciate the dream in the heads of a lot of young guys you know and you know I want to be a pro and you know my advice is always the same and I know we have some that listen to the show that I know personally and it's always the same well let's focus on winning you know or top placing in a regional show first you know then maybe you you know your real goal should be moved toward the national level over maybe a five-year period you know, realizing some of the, the PED, you know, performance-enhancing drugs and some of the other things that might come into that depending on what kind of league you're in. Yeah, but let's leave pro, you know, as an ultimate, very long-term goal. But, yeah, you got many steps. Enjoy the journey, you know, and, and focus on realistic goals between here and there before you, um, you know, you just insist, I, I, I'm going to turn pro this year. Well, no, you're not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think the older you are too, you realize that <clears throat> there's not one little single magical trick that's <clears throat> going to transform it. And, you know, even like hanging around with a lot of, um, you know, top strongmen, they're talking about, oh, I did this training and that training. And, you know, at first I was like, oh, that's kind of surprising, you know, but then you realize that even if they told you exactly what they did, that probably only worked for them. They've already done it, right? So, that info may not necessarily work for you. And even if it did, then you've got to put the years of time in to do it too. So Right. Years. I would only compete. Yeah. You know, <laughs> Phil is always ever since we've had this this podcast, he's always been our resident, you know, quote unquote competitor because he competes maybe twice a year and that's not a lot, right? His his age, he probably doesn't want to do it more than that. And I can appreciate that. But it's still an awful lot like compared to what I would do or even Fortress, you know, in the early days. Uh, and the reason I had to do that is because, like you said, there would be years between me trying to, instead of compete like at, let's say, in the light heavyweight class, you can weigh up to 198. So if I was 189, you know, when I competed after dehydration and everything, I would try to give myself literally three or four years or more so I could compete. My, my ultimate goal was to compete right at 198. You know, I, and I never quite achieved what I wanted to do, which would be shredded at 210 and then dehydrate down to 198. You know, I, I just, it's asking a lot on my frame, and I just yeah. I didn't quite get there. I did get into the mid-190s, though, um, as far as being in shape and dehydrate, you know, with that small amount. I don't want people to go out and dehydrate the hell out of themselves and hurt themselves, but yeah, um, yeah you do have to take a lot of that into, into consideration. You know, I don't think people realize... How, how incredibly below minimum your body weight is when you actually compete. You're emaciated. Yes, you are maybe, you know, two, three, four, five percent dehydrated, stuff like that. And so that's not what you walk around like. But in any case, yeah, years in between. So I could put on literally just that five pounds of, 
you know, five to eight pounds, let's say, of real muscle tissue that might be noticeable to a judge. You don't just turn around and do that the same year unless you're, you know, heavily chemically enhanced, frankly. So, yeah, especially as you get, you know, if you've been doing it for decades, I mean, the amount of gains you get are just exponentially smaller oh. as you're that far into it. Yeah, the maturity that's called for it is enormous. You're right, because of diminishing returns like that. Uh, yeah. All right. Um, let's get to. I have two little news tidbits, and I think Dr. Nelson has one. Strength and Muscle Sport News. This is from the Institute of Food Technologists. Again, I love these guys, but the U.S. Department of Agriculture and Department of Health and Human Services is inviting the public's input on the next dietary guidelines for Americans. Um, for the first time, these departments will seek public comments on the proposed priority topics uh, and some of the supporting scientific questions that will guide the 2020 through 2025 edition of the DGA, the Dietary Guidelines for Americans. And again, I don't want to sound sacrilegious, but to me, these are sort of the Ten Commandments of Nutrition, if you want to think about it like that. It's one of several tools that are available to everybody, uh, essentially for free, uh, that help you guide what you eat, right? Like food labels, uh, you know, there's the old food guide pyramid, which is now my plate. There's a lot of different tools that you can use, you know. Um, you know, the recommended dietary allowances, you know, those sorts of things. But this is one of the things, and they're asking for comments. And if you're interested as uh, essentially our people, uh, as, as strength and muscle athletes, the comment period is open from February 28th through March 30th. So literally this month, you have a chance to actually um, like get on the USDA or, or HHS websites and comment about what you think is important. Um, there is a new approach with the dietary guidelines that's coming up. They want to focus more on, um, well, A, yes, public participation, uh, but also th this sort of lifespan approach, like birth through older adulthood. So a lot of our listeners realize that when it comes to things like protein and whatnot, uh, Mike, you and I, it's standard fare when we talk about protein in a, like a nutrition class that, yeah. you know, the RDA for protein is 0 0.8 grams per kg each day. And there is no category for athletes. Uh, there are different categories for age and things like that on different nutrients, but there's not one for athletes. It might be nice to say, yeah, what about physical activity? Can we have something in there? I don't think they're going to listen, but <laughs> but we know from decades of research from researchers like Mark Konopolsky and Peter Lemon and, you know, more recently, Stu Phillips and Nick Bird, that the protein recommendations are really they are, in fact, different for us compared to everybody else. It's not just age and gender that affects your, your RDAs, you know. So um, anyway, it says, in addition to a focus on life stages, and I've seen a lot of this lately, questions from public comments should reflect a continued focus on patterns of what we eat and drink as a whole over time, not just individual foods or food groups. So if you grew up with the food guide pyramid and you're thinking, oh, six to 11 servings of, you know, grains like breads and cereals or two to four fruit or three to four vegetables, um, they're going to change it a little bit to patterns. Um, so I, I think the idea is behaviorally, maybe people who eat a certain pattern, like the way that you or I eat, Mike, you could probably identify certain patterns there, like less processed foods, less fast foods, you know, things like that, um, as opposed to just trying to do it with food groups. 
So uh, I thought that might be interesting. In fact, I think lifters in general, our listeners, probably there's probably certain patterns, right, that what we eat, probably more meat and dairy, for example, you know, things like that, um, mixed nuts, you know, uh, things things of that nature. Uh, and they're, again, they're fibrous vegetables, right? So there's, they're trying to put these together in healthy patterns and look at the patterns. I don't, do you have any thoughts on that? No, I think that's a, a much better way to go. And I'm sure you probably do something similar too when you look at just nutrition recall from clients. And that's kind of one of the first things I look at is, you know, because people are like, oh, well, don't you just look at all the macros and everything else? I'm like, no, I look at the actual food they ate, what did they have together? And then, and then I look at their lifestyle and see where they're at, you know, because I think sometimes it's almost too easy to put ridiculous targets on things without looking at the whole pattern and figuring out, well, why do they do that? You know, why did they only have black coffee and coconut in the morning or things like that? So I think the pattern recognition is a, a better way to go than following these super strict guidelines. Right. In, in, in fact, you know, a lot of times I, I get concerned when even dietitians I've known, they tend to look at things like, um, Food, they confuse food with nutrients sometimes. Uh, yeah. In other words, they might say, oh, a high-protein diet, that's low fiber. You know, that's high in saturated fat. Really? You know, <laughs> things like that, right? And, and instead, you're like, well, okay, that's because of you're looking at a Big, big Mac diet. You know, that's a, a yeah. fast food burger type of protein diet. That, that is not what my cohort consumes, like not at all. Like, don't tell me. In fact, we've, we've actually presented stuff about this. Peer-reviewed settings presented stuff about, you know, high-protein diets uh, on average, at least among lifters, are higher in fiber or at least not any lower, you know, and that sort of thing because they're getting their, their protein from skinless, boneless chicken breasts and half their plate is full of green beans or broccoli or something. It's not low fiber at all. High protein, again, they're confusing the nutrient protein with the food item, burger, you know, or something like that. And, you know, and they do that with red meats and other things too, right? Like we always talk about, what do you mean by red meat? Do you mean, you know, eye of round steak or do you mean hot dogs and bologna? These are very different things. So I I think there's a, a tendency sometimes in that population just to look at the food item in isolation, right? And say that, well, you know, chicken and steak, those are very low fiber foods. Therefore, if you're eating a high protein diet, it must be low fiber. Exactly. No, because you eat other things. (laughs) Again, with the patterns, right? Like we might call this, in fact, might be worth commenting, you know, to HHS or the USDA. Hey, there is a sort of there's such a, a, a surge in fitness, whether it's CrossFit or lifting or whatever. Yes, we're a huge minority in the population. Of course we are. But we have a certain pattern that's very, like, phytochemical rich, micronutrient rich, you know, because of the dairy, the meats, the mixed nuts, and, you know, the, the fibrous vegetables and, and fruits. And, you know, the, the way that we, I mean, look at crack open any, like, um, muscle magazine, and you can get reinforcement for right or wrong, you know, of these sorts of dietary patterns. And they're, they are, they're less processed and they're more rich in a lot of things like potassium, like the new dietary, um, the new um, nutrient facts panel actually starts to include potassium as one of the minerals, one of those, what I would call at-risk minerals. And I don't think we have much of a problem with that. Like we don't have a huge sodium potassium 
uh, mismatch like the average gen pop person because, again, with the nuts and the fruits and the vegetables and the dairy and the meat, there's a lot of potassium actually in our diets, whereas the average person eats very little potassium because they have almost no fruits and vegetables, <coughs> you know, and stuff like that. So, yeah. yeah. And then you add that athletes are usually exercising, so they're sweating, so they're losing a lot of sodium and other electrolytes too, so they can yep. probably need more of it to begin with. Right. There's no doubt. I, I think in many ways, I once wrote, wrote an article called High Stakes, like a pun on the word steak, about huge amounts of calorie intake and how that's, in theory, would shorten lifespan compared to low-cal diets. And But I yeah. think exercise itself is so hugely corrective. Like it overrides a lot of the things that we might do that would be considered hard on us. You know, just the exercise, like you said, that's just one example, right, with yeah, sweating off some of the some of the sodium, for example. Yeah, and even then, like the the people who expose kind of the caloric restriction, like the really really hardcore ones, not just fasting, but you know, slash your calories by forty, sixty percent. Ooh, they they don't look very functional to me, which is kind of cruel. But yep, agree. You look at well, what are the top three markers for longevity, and it's VO two max, lower body strength, and grip strength. You know, all three of them are are functional indicators. And yep. I would be willing to bet most of those people probably don't fare so well on that scale. So that's the data we have, and that's what we believe to be markers of longevity. I would argue doing better on those is going to be a much greater advantage than something that, yeah, it's kind of had some cool data on earthworms and maybe monkeys, although that data was pretty split. Um, I'll go with the data we know in humans so far. No, exactly. I mean, if you have to undereat between, like you said, 30, 40, 50%, who wants to live an extra five well, years if you're miserable and weak and yeah. small? <laughs> so, <Yeah. laughs> no thanks. No thanks. Um, there are a couple other studies in here. I just want to bring them up because I think they're frankly silly. This is the kind of stuff that Phil has rolled his eyes about in the past. And Mike, you and I, and Phil knows this too, but science is very tiny increments, you know, inches forward. And but some of this stuff, it, it does make me wonder. Like one of these studies was about how uh, vegetarian and Mediterranean diets might reduce heart disease. I'm like, really, guys? I mean, <laughs> it, we've known that for decades. Earth shattering. Right. Um, there was another one about, you know, U.S. youth are actually fatter than in the past. Okay, thanks for that one. Who's funding these, yeah. right? I'll, I'll take some of the funding for my coffee research, please. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway, um, this next bit of news, this is the last piece I have. Almost one-third of consumers would try cultured meat. So if you remember, listeners, if you listened last year, Mike and I were out in Vegas. We went to the IFT meeting, and I like these what these guys do because there's a lot of innovation, and they love to like disrupt the current industry. And I could tell you, lab-grown meat is going to be very disruptive already. Uh, like I went to this one of the you know those free dinner buffet award ceremonies type things that they have at these conferences and the um, I went to one called the protein essentially protein group or something about protein foods and sports nutrition or whatever it was and I thought I'm thinking oh dairy proteins and powders and no the whole thing was just about butchered meat it was about livestock and agriculture and anyway those guys were not down with the lab-grown meat for obvious reasons, right? Because once you start growing muscle cells in, in large vats, 
you don't need the animals anymore. And anyway, if, if anybody's interested, go back and listen. It would have been like a 2017 summer episode that we did. We did it on site. Um, I'm sure you remember that, Mike. And, oh, yeah. And um, was, I don't know. It's <clears throat> It was very fascinating. And I think the, the technology is going to be here sooner than we think. Yes. Right? One guy was saying he expected, and again, predictions, who knows if they ever come true. But 2019, by the end of the, that year, he expected to see lab-grown meat in some high-end restaurants already. Yes. That's way sooner than I think most people are thinking. Yeah, the guy from Memphis Meat said something about reaching market parity, right? Basically, same cost as livestock butchered meat. What do you say, like 2021 or something? It was not that far away. Two, I think, but okay. yeah. Okay, yeah. <clears throat> anyway, there's a few more uh, bits of data here. It says, I find this funny. Vegans are the consumer segment most willing to try cultured and lab-grown meat, nah. <laughs> according to a survey <laughs> of 1,000 consumers in the U.S. and the U.K., now, right, so you're laughing like I did already, because even my my wife will say, I mean, listeners, you know that we're we're very omnivorous. Maybe we lean toward carnivorous on this podcast because of the, you know, the the sheer dose, the concentrated nutrients that you can you can get in quality meats. But oftentimes, my wife will laugh about, you know, if they're so anti meat, why do they shape? Why do they mold and shape all these sorts of soy products and stuff into meat shapes or, you know, or flavor them like meat? If meat is so offensive and it's so, you know, the human body wasn't meant to consume it, according to, again, some very zealous vegans, then why are they always trying to imitate it? How can it be both repulsive and everything you're eating is shaped like it or tastes like it? Uh, uh, anyway. Why do we have tofurkey? Right. <laughs> yep. Yep. So... This says, let's see, overall, 29% of consumers said they would eat cultured meat. So, again, nearly a third, uh, with 60% of vegans expressing a willingness to give it a try. Yeah. They're excited. <laughs> yeah, right? Um, now, you know, here's me kind of poking fun, but make no mistake, it, and we've all said this, if you're a vegan for ethical reasons, this really blurs the line for you, right? I mean, yeah. it's the ones that say that human beings weren't designed to eat meat that make me roll my eyes. I always think about the picture I took of you, Mike, in the Smithsonian squatting yeah. down with a whole wing in, in the Smithsonian Institution is about how meats allowed larger brains and almost you know, was one of, the, one of the ways that society developed, right? Because if you eat meats, you don't have to yeah. graze low-quality grasses all day, and that gives you time then after you've had a nutritious protein-rich meal, you have time to develop culture and science and art. And, you know, it, it's just interesting stuff. I mean, not just the anthropological record, like butchering instruments, or the fact that we have incisors, right? You, we have teeth yeah. made for slicing, or the fact that we have collagenase enzyme. I mean, that digest collagen, where, do you, where does that come from? Hmm, meats, like that's in your gut, right? So to say that we're not made to eat meat is where I, I just ha I have disagreements, you know, um, but in any case, yeah, 60% willing to try. There was an online survey. It was just conducted like literally two weeks ago, um, commissioned by Ingredient Communications, which is just like a public relations mm -hmm. agency for the food industry. Uh, it, now, this is also interesting. Americans were more open to consuming cultured meat than residents of the UK, 40% of U.S. respondents said they would give it a go, and only 18% of British respondents. Hmm. I would say that's probably not that surprising. 
Why do you think? I don't know. I mean, just my experience over in Europe, which is, again, a generalization, is they seem to be more down and it's changing. But, you know, when I stayed with some families, you know, they go to the store a couple times a week. You know where your food kind of came from, especially if you get out more in the rural areas. Um, where the U.S., to me, just seems so enamored with technology. And however you can get anything faster and more efficient, that's got to mm. be a, a better way. Mm-hmm. So. I guess it kind of dies with the, my thoughts on that. Yeah, it does say the survey, The results of this survey indicate that there is a huge difference between how U.S. and U.K. consumers perceive cultured meat, says Neil Carey, managing director of the firm that conducted the survey. So uh, this is partly our prediction, right? Every year when we do our little predictions, uh, one of them was we're going to keep hearing about the gut biome, and we are, and cultured meat is also high on this list. There's probably a few themes that our listeners know that we're always going to talk about. <laughs> Coffee, meat, you know, yeah. stuff like that. Uh, gut biome. Um, so it's interesting, though. I, I wouldn't have guessed, honestly, that it would be that high. I actually asked around when we got back from Vegas, like, would you try lab-grown meat? But usually when you ask people that, you have to explain. I, this is not like pink jello quivering muscle tissue. You know, this is – it's yeah. on a scaffold. It, it has – it's fibrous – it's a lot like eating meat, you know. Uh, I would totally buy stock in these companies if I had if I had a couple of grand to throw around. I really would. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, because even for listeners may or may not know, but for almost like three plus decades, I didn't eat any red meat at all. Um, but even during that time, I wasn't against other people eating it. It just, whatever reason, had zero appeal to me. Did not sound interesting. Hmm. Uh, now I do, as of probably six years ago. And the interesting part was I just wanted to be more metabolically flexible. So I just wanted to get to the point where I knew I could eat it and not get sick. Because there, you know, there's some some stuff that people haven't eaten it for multiple decades that you know, the first time you have a whole bunch may not be the best experience ever. Um, and then after that, I found you know a farmer that had you know grass-fed beef that raised them in very humane ways and yes. that type of thing. So and just kind of incorporated into my diet since then, and it's been been fine. But, you know, a lot of the reasons I didn't was it just never was that appealing to me, and then also a lot of the – I didn't really agree with the way the, the factory farming and a lot of the processes are, are done with yeah, that. But yeah. the flip side is I didn't run around and be like, oh, you're eating a steak, you horrible human being. <laughs> no, exactly. And honestly, I take that approach. I sound sort of anti – vegan in many ways, but that's partly because I very much value dietary variety, right? And yeah. like, you know, like kind of you're saying, whether the way it changes the, you know, a lot of the enzymes of your GI tract, sort of what you're referring to with the meat, are inducible, right? Whether it's, yeah. you know, you can become a better carbohydrate digester and metabolizer or or meat or, or whatever. It's, your gut is very much a use it or lose it system like skeletal muscle. And we focus so much on adaptation in our fields as far as training results on muscle tissue uh, or bone and sometimes we overlook the idea that your gut is very much the same it's just about adaptation you know and so yeah i value variety too i don't i'm not down um on vegans so long as they're willing to plan you know first of all they're willing to sort of acknowledge that they're removing whole portions of whatever food guide you prefer from around the world they're removing portions of it 
And then some of these things, these these zoo chemicals, right, you're just not going to get very much of. So you might want to plan around that, you know, maybe supplement creatine or vitamin B12 or zinc or, you know, some of these different things. Uh, carnosine, I don't know, uh, you know, beta alanine type things. Um, and acknowledge those things and work around them instead of saying, nope, m nope, my body wasn't made to do that. And like, well, you're you're going to end up with pernicious anemia then because you're not eating any B12, <laughs> you know, and um, stuff like that or, you know. Anyway, my last thought on that is that if people are going to do more of the extreme approaches, then, you know, like you said, put your time and effort in. If you have to hire someone to, to do it, make sure you're doing it intelligently. Yeah. I mean, I even wrote a, helped write an article for a website on a, a vegan ketogenic diet. And when the editor first proposed it to me, I'm like, that's insane. I'm not <laughs> writing anything on that. That's the dumbest idea I've ever heard <laughs> in my life. And then his point was a very, well-taken point is that, well, there's some people who are already, you know, vegan for whatever reason who want to try a ketogenic diet. I'm like, oh, well, I guess if that, if you're already there, then making sure you do it in kind of a half intelligent way is going to be better than just throwing a bunch of stuff together. Yeah. It would be a challenge if you think, cause I tend well, to think, oh, there right. go the, yeah, <laughs> there go so many, you know, things that you, yeah, but you could do it with nuts and yeah, mix a couple different things together for sure. Yeah. Okay. Um, did you have anything? You said you you had a particular so one study. Quick study that this came out in October last year. The last name is Freeze, F R E E S E J, and this was in an online journal you can find just called Floor Research. The title is "A Sedentary Re-Evolution: Have We Lost Our Metabolic Flexibility?" and Super cool review that they pulled together of using the framework of metabolic flexibility with kind of an ancestral health model. And it's open access, so highly encourage people to read it. I read it when it first came out in October, and I, it's on indexed on PubMed now. So I read it again yesterday, but it's, yeah, it was very nice because obviously I've <clears throat> looked at that area for many years to see someone who pull, pulled everything together and it's becoming more of a, as you say, popular framework of how to view just obesity and exercise and how do they all fit together. And what I also like, too, is that it's not just, uh, well, just eat less calories. You know, I'm not saying calories don't matter, but as an action step and as a way of explaining things, I think that's just a, a horrible argument. Yeah. And it's just looking at the, <clears throat> the brain is controlling it, and they use what I like as kind of a push-pull uh, acronym. So if you have caloric excess, you're pushing stuff away, right? Or you're storing possibly carbohydrates in glycogen, but for the average non-moving American, then you're pushing that into fat, and then what happens when they start to back up and non-alcoholic fatty liver disease? And then how do you liber or liberate uh, different fuels, uh, especially for the, the brain and just sort of the, the priority of it? And <clears throat> the one thing that was struck me when I was reading it is, I've had this thought for a while is if you're, you know, the average person who doesn't exercise a lot, I'm starting to think that the, the sort of the bolus that you take in of like say 300 or 400 grams of carbohydrates all at once or even 200, that we should be doing more testing to see how your system handles that, right? So like a glorified oral glucose tolerance test. Mm -hmm. I have a feeling that we're going to see more and more people that that may be an early indicator of something going awry 
and not just using simply fasting glucose and <clears throat> measurements like that, which obviously will change. But I think the better you can buffer your body against even those insults, uh, I think the better off you're going to be, you'll be more metabolically flexible and you're just going to be more resilient organism too. Right. Yeah. You know, we just did that in class last week. We did a essentially an OGTT. Um, oh, nice. Because we, we're it's a glycemic index kind of lab, right? So yeah. one of the they both eat fifty grams of carbohydrates. And listeners, if you ever want to prove yourself to yourself um, that carbohydrate choices matter, one of them ate a mix of red beans and an apple, so about fifty grams. The other ate four pieces of white bread, again about fifty grams. And then we did, you know, the of course, 120 minute curve, just doing a simple finger prick every 30 minutes. And, and of course the white bread went sky high. In fact, the, the problem with a lot of this though, is we talk in class and if you're going to, going to try this, um, and to your point, Mike, about fasting blood sugar, or whether it's your response to a, a, a set dose, usually it's 50 or a hundred grams, but, uh, You've got to think about all the different confounders that could affect it. Like the uh, one guy who ate the white bread, he shot up to 150 milligrams per deciliter, ooh. which is really high. I mean, usually you'll see healthy athletes around 140, maybe you know, after even after the white bread. And and I sorry, I said let's ask him about a couple of different things because you know soccer player, very fit, stuff like that. And as it turned out, he was very sore, you know. And I'm like, well, that could play part of this, you know. Uh, just because sore muscles don't take up carbohydrates and store them as well, yep. and you know things like that. But yeah, you, it, sometimes you got to think about all the things that could, in fact, be affecting it. Uh, you know, maybe you're yeah you're doing a lot of eccentric training, you're not doing a lot of volume, or you know, or whatever it it might be. But yeah, family history. There, of course, there's a ton of different things there, uh, even like stimulant intake, you know, stuff like that. So. Um, yeah, but it's fun to look at that. And like you said, I, I like what you said about not just fasting because, oh my God, people need to realize too that these glucometers, they might be plus or minus five or 10, you know, milligrams per deciliter. And to a diabetic who's looking at a, a 500 scale of yeah. blood sugar, that's really quite accurate. But to a healthy young person like our population uh, of lifters, not just young, but, you know, fit and whatnot. Plus or minus 10 or 15 units is way too sloppy when you're looking at a, a healthy blood sugar between something like 70 and 100, you know. So, yeah, multiple samples and stuff like that just so you can watch, realize the device goes up and down as well, you know. But Yeah, and that's where I think the continuous glucose monitoring, like there's the Libre Freestyle system, which I've used for two weeks, and my wife's got two of them on her right now, so we're, we're kind of – sort of testing the accuracy a little bit in cool. a one mm -hmm. uh, where it takes a measurement every five minutes for two weeks and then you log everything you eat. To me, that's like fascinating because now you get to see over a long enough time period, you get to, you know, if you monitor HRV, you can look at stress, you could look at sleep, you could look at soreness, you can look at food intake, different amounts. Yep. And seeing the dynamic system in action and what's going on. So I think that's super interesting. Right. Sleep. Good one. You're right. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. I've said it for the past five years, but once Fitbits and all these different Garmin type devices, once they can continuously monitor my blood glucose, then I'll buy one. But bef yeah. before then, I'm just not as excited personally about steps per day or how many flights up or down or heart rate data. I mean, it, yeah, it's helpful. But me, myself, like, because I'm not, if I was in the middle of a low-cal diet and I really wanted to track my 
my neat or NEPA, then I would do that. But um, yeah, hope I'm hoping though that yeah we're not far away from them just incorporating that right into the Apple Watch or something like that. I mean, Apple Watches do HRV now, you know, stuff yeah, like that. So. <laughs> What's that? HRV on its crap. But oh, yeah, is it crap? Oh, hey, that's yeah. good to know. I just noticed it. I one of my students said, "Hey, I can actually get HRV data from my watch." I'm like, "Well, we're going to use the the chest straps, you know, the and the app that uh, Dr. Nelson suggested. You know, we need something that's lab quality." It, so, the thirty second answer on that is it's an optical off of the wrist, which is not. I'm not convinced it's super accurate. And then also, the time course of when they pull it without the context, even if it was uber accurate. If you just exercised or ran up a flight of stairs or drank two cups of coffee, obviously it's going to be quite different than first thing in the morning. See, so. now that's interesting you said that because next year one of the, the little investigations that I want to do is acute HRV. I want to give two cups yeah. of, of coffee, and I want to look at the magnitude right, of, of change. We've, we've done the blood draw version of this. Like, oh, that's what we're going to present in Dublin. They're like, oh, look, you know um, – by itself, the coffee doesn't change your epinephrine concentrations really, but stack it with even brief ballistic exercise. I mean, brief, uh, and it it really magnifies the effect. You know, so you can look at it with hormones, but I like the idea of the non-invasive. Let's just use heart rate variability as a way to look at this, and and like you said, do it acutely. But if we're gonna do that and make coffee the main, you know, independent variable, then we got to make sure that we we control sleep and so many other things, you know, so. Yeah, and that's what I did in the energy drink study, too. That's the main reason I measured HRV is, one, you know, does it give us any data on possible risk of energy drinks? And then, two, I was interested in, I didn't have quite enough power to look at in the study, was if HRV uh, really changes, right, so the energy drink really makes you very sympathetic, since we did that before we did a, a ride to exhaustion, does that line up with the people who did better on the exercise test? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So maybe some people are just more sensitive to it, even though we did it per body weight to try to get around that. But if we see that, you know, eight people performed better and, you know, six didn't, but all eight had an altered HRV that showed they went very sympathetic and then performed better, hmm, that's kind of interesting. Right on. You see that, though. <laughs> and that's interesting, too, because we saw a – a disconnect between mental alertness and actual bar speed, right? When, yeah. Like a God, we went, we went to Japan with some of that data, and yeah, the more wired, it was not like a one for one. The more wired you feel, the faster the bar is moving. So that's what I think is funny is all these pre workout products. It suggests that a lot of them, it's in your head. You know, I'm not yeah. saying that there's no relationship between like catecholamines and muscle contraction or muscle strength. Or there's probably something there, but we certainly look at it at a disconnect it certainly wasn't a linear effect where the more wired you are the more explosive you were you know and so those products are people are buying them up like woo you know i'm a superman it's like well no you feel like you're a superman <laughs> but yeah yeah i'm doing the helping with the jissn the reversion of the new caffeine position stand so i've been up to my eyeballs and that stuff for four weeks and one of the studies that popped out to me that was super interesting was basically a placebo and intervention so they both got a placebo and they told one group, hey, this is, you know, kind of a pre-workout. They told the other group, this is a placebo. And it was the same thing. They mm -hmm. both were a placebo, if I remember correctly. And the effect size they showed was similar to a pretty high dose of caffeine. Funny. Yeah. yeah. 
So then you go back and think, oh, wow, what all the studies that we're just doing a comparison without a placebo group or even a control group, oh, man, that really muddies the waters. Oh, yeah. I mean, in the last five years, we moved toward using a water control, right, because of the anticipation that you would get from just drinking a hot brown liquid thinking it may or may not be caught. Like, we didn't tell them it was it was decaf or coffee, but the bottom line is you're drinking a special beverage and you have that sort of what, what they call 50% anticipation, you know. But I can tell you, Mike, people don't see the unglamorous side of research. And the, the days that the students came in, the, the subjects, and drank room temperature tap water before yeah. their lifts, man, nobody yep. wanted to be there. No, <laughs> it's, not, it's, not, it's not exciting. Right. Yep. Yeah. All right, let's go to break. When we come back, we're going to talk about getting unstuck. So we'll have some questions and some practical tips for people. If muscle mass or strength and performance, you just haven't been able to change like you want. So we'll be back in a bit. Hey listeners, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry. If you've ever had anyone critique you uh, on your protein intake as part of your weightlifting lifestyle, oh, you poor meathead, all that extra protein is going to rot your kidneys or weaken your bones or dehydrate you or give you gout or who knows what. Uh, There is a book available. You could simply Google CRC Press and Lowry. And what I've done is reach out to experts all over the world and create a book, a single compendium that you can hold up and say, this is why I consume extra protein. This can be very valuable when you're um, being quote unquote educated uh, by various professionals on the topic. Uh, There's enormous amount of literature in this book on the safety, uh, the effectiveness, how protein works in cells, the history of protein and weight trainers, uh, much more. So again, please check out CRC Press and Protein and Lowry. You can just Google that, and uh, I do, full disclosure, I do make a small single-digit royalty on the book, but that's not why I did it. I did it so we can all have something, uh, our particular population, uh, to both defend what we do and to inform our nutrition and our eating. Thanks. Iron Radio is, of course, primarily a podcast. But over the years, there have been technical glitches calling for backup streaming and listeners who wanted the convenience of other sources of audio content. Toward this end, Iron Radio is now simulcast and backed up on YouTube. If needed, please search Lawnman07 or Iron Radio from within YouTube. There's not much video, but if you like to listen through YouTube on a Roku or other living room device, there you go. your weekly fix of iron radio in addition to being a popular institute on itunes we are also on email simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email you'll get a once per week email no more that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio so go for it All right, folks, we're back. It's Mike and Lonnie. Uh, Phil is away. He's down at the Arnold Classic. In fact, I should probably make a note. I kind of feel bad. 
Uh, Phil asked if I was going to go. Grant, who we talk about every once in a while on the show, he's down there as part of a medical team. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, so all this, these people, there's all this draw, and I'm only two hours away, and a lot of people would say, my God, why don't you go down? I'm like, well, I don't know. I, I used to go down all the time, but, you know, you you see the same thing over and over and over. It has been long enough, though, I think a lot of probably the, I'm hoping the booths, the supplement stuff is all sort of evolved a little bit, but I, I doubt it. <laughs> Yeah, um, and I can only stand walking around, you know, seeing so many, um, you know, noobs carrying distilled water, and they're all fake tanned up, and they're not even competing in anything. And I, I can only stand so much of that. So, too salty. Yeah, I've gone for about three years. I think the last time I was there was with uh, Dr. Cotter. So, um, it was fun. I also learned my lesson not to go to the expo on Saturday. Oh, Old- right. Crap, was that even more of a nut house? Yeah. Yeah, there's like, at any given time, I would wager there's probably 20,000 plus people in one room. Yeah. Yeah. Shoulder to shoulder, quite literally. Anyway. Yeah, but people okay. never gone. I'd recommend they go. It's a cool scene. There's tons of cool stuff to see. And, you know, but yeah, once you've gone, like, I think I've been there three, four times now. And if I'm not presenting or doing anything there, it's, yeah. It'd be cool if someone just dropped me off there and get to hang out and see people. But other than that, it's kind of the same thing every year, I think. Yeah, me too. It sounds a little smug. Like, if I'm not presenting down there, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> you know, but it, it, that is the it, – it's a draw in that you're obligated, sort of. So then you go down and you check out the expo and everything else, yeah. you know. But, yeah. Okay. Well, let's talk about getting unstuck. We've had some episodes in years past on – busting plateaus and things like that but so we're going to revisit this uh i'm just gonna we're going to kind of do this from an over under perspective here so i'll toss out some thoughts and then we'll see what dr nelson says because of course he works directly with clients on this stuff uh, so let's say you're stuck right you can't make gains with a z uh whether it's muscle mass or strength or we can even apply this in the reverse to fat loss too right people get stuck and they they get very frustrated i mean think about how many over fat americans there are they're just very frustrated they're like i don't know where to turn i feel like i'm i'm eating almost nothing and you know that kind of thing um so if you want to get unstuck you want to break a plateau that you've been on for a long period of time um, the first thing question I'm going to ask as far as over under is, are you over or under training, right? Is the amount of volume and intensity or combined volume intensity, uh, again, the number of sets and reps and then basically weight on the bar, uh, is it adequate to stimulate you? Uh, Mike, what are your thoughts about that? So someone's stuck and we're basically trying to approach this from an over under perspective What's a good volume or dose uh, of exercise for, like, let, let's say for muscle mass? What would you think? Yeah, so <clears throat> the literature is getting more clear that volume is probably one of the big drivers for uh, hypertrophy, probably also for strength because you get more practice, assuming that it's a high-quality volume. Again, you know, if you're doing 1RMs or you know, triples, it's going to be different than doing, you know, high rep sets, that type of thing. Um, yeah, this is a question that bugged me for years, and I think I stole this from Alan Cosgrove, is I start pretty much every single client now on an extremely low volume. They probably even have a week of just doing almost nothing or a taper even before that. 
because vast majority of the people I get are, you know, type A pretty, they tend to overdo it and not underdo it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm guessing that they're probably over. When we start measuring HRV, which will tell us approximately where they're at, but it's going to need a couple of weeks to get a good baseline. So I would start at one or even two sets, you know, just their standard if they were training three or four days a week or five days a week. And they get the habit of still going to the gym and doing something, but I can't really go any lower than one set, right? So I know that, and I just keep going up, just old school, boring, linear volume, and I just add one set per week. So week two, two sets. Week three, three sets. Four sets, five sets, six sets. And I'm looking at how they feel, how their joints are, how their HRV is, because we'll have some pretty good data by week three and four. And just see where they drop off. You know, some people it's, you know, four sets, five sets, six sets. The highest I've ever had is someone who did seven sets, which is insane. Um, and I, from there, we'll do a taper. And then the next time, I'm like, oh, all right, cool. You made it to, you know, around four sets. And we know what exercises you were doing, how much load you're lifting. So I guess it's a pretty good idea of about how much volume you can handle. So I'll go and just start a little bit below that or I'll you know get a little bit quote unquote fancier and maybe one week's a volume week, the next week's a density week, maybe mm-hmm. it's an intensity week after that. And I just start playing around with those variables, but I've got a pretty darn good idea of about how much volume they can handle. And that way I don't get too far out into left field. Because if I guess at like three or four sets, assuming all their fatigue has been cleared up and gone away, well, if I get to five sets and now that was way too much, oh man, now I probably have to do at least a slight taper, bring them back down, start again. Or if I just start super low and I can just get them to bear with me for a couple of weeks because I hate it, then we'll have some pretty good data and we'll be all right. Right on. Yeah, without making this too focused just on a volume requirement because we have lots of things to kind of wade through, but uh, I watched Stu Phillips present some data. I don't know if they were his own or not. They probably were about essentially three sets, like three sets of 10, maxing out protein synthesis in a particular muscle group. And yeah. I thought that was very interesting because now we actually have a ballpark at least of what's adequate, you know, because in years past, people have talked about one set to failure and this and that. Um, but if three sets is going to do it, that that actually affects the way that I train now. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't think I'm going to do a total of three sets for chest, for example. Um, you'd like to hit it from different angles. We've, we've had Joey Antonio, Dr. Antonio, on the podcast before talking about activating satellite cells and how maybe different angles might, you know, uh, affect different, you know, accessory muscles and supportive tissues and stuff in different ways. Um, but it is interesting, though, that, you know, people that do 25 sets of back work, for example, is that too much? <laughs> you know, yeah. they see a pro athlete do it and then they they overdo it. And again, if three sets uh, will stimulate essentially a muscle pretty close to maximally, at least that would help you guide yourself not to do ridiculous amounts of what I would call junk reps, you know. And I can tell you from the eccentric contraction side, just looking at other literature and what I've seen myself in the lab, it's somewhere between 20 and 40 uh, eccentric repetitions, you know, so heavy negatives makes you now not for protein synthesis, but just for like uh, really getting rocked, you know, and causing a lot of muscle remodeling. I know soreness, like delayed onset muscle soreness, it's not a perfect correlation with uh, growth and that sort of thing. But 
um, a lot of those sort of routines that are meant to induce muscle soreness, it's, yeah, 20, 25 reps on the low end, maybe 40 reps on the upper end, because you have to appreciate that, yeah, you could be lowering that weight with more than 100% of your maximum, you know, and there's a lot of time under tension, and there's a lot of uh, microtrauma that goes on. So, um, but I like what you're saying, too. Um, both of us, I guess, are saying you have to see where you are based on what the science says, what's a good amount of volume for something like muscle mass. Uh, one of the things that I've done in the past is not, I used to, when I was a noob, when I added volume, I would do higher rep sets. But why not just do an additional set? Like you could literally be doing sets of threes to fives and just add a, another set because then you head into that set a little fresher, right? And so I would think from a strength perspective, that might be uh, might be a good idea, right? Adding yeah. a, a set instead of more reps. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of that. So I usually program rep ranges. So if people are doing programming, so I'll say like five to eight rep range. So mm -hmm. take a load. You shouldn't hit failure, even if you're at eight reps, you know, leave one or two in the bank. And that's going to tell you about what load you are. So if you're doing five sets, I'll have people, okay, I did six reps. Even on your fifth set, I don't really want to see you go below five, right? Because I want to ensure that that quality of work is as high as possible. Right. And like volume. you said, I'm still getting that volume that's accumulating if they're looking for more hypertrophy change and burning calories and that kind of stuff too. So, yep. Sue's thing there, I, I believe from talking to him that uh, he's a fan of at least having the last set be done to failure and that the failure part of that may be what's actually triggering the muscle protein synthesis. And maybe right. we could grab Nick Bird or someone to talk about that again too because – he was one of the first people to actually look at that in the lab, too. So yeah, I that think may be a, a lot of that has to do with, I mean, if you're going to sort of rotate through some of the smaller motor units and get to right. the big boys, you could either do it with weight or you can fatigue through them and get to the big ones at the end of a high rep set, right? Yep. So, yep. Um, all right, next up, a question you might ask yourself if you are stuck is sleep. Uh, are you over or under sleeping? And I don't think most people are at much risk of oversleeping. But I think undersleeping is a big deal. So what do you think, Dr. Nelson? Uh, dose, if you will, in hours, or maybe it's uh, if you log your, you know, your sleep quality, like on a Likert scale, like a one to seven scale or whatnot, what would you be looking for if you were satisfied that your athletes or your clients you know, were in the right dose of sleep? Yeah, in a, <clears throat> a perfect world, that just one rarely ever works. As I tell people, just keep going to bed earlier and earlier, get some daylight exposure. And then if you can, which again is not possible for most people, let yourself sleep as long as possible. So a lot of times I'll do this with clients when they go on vacation. I'm like, hey, you're going on vacation. I know it's not sexy to try to go to bed at a reasonable hour, but at least let yourself sleep in each day, right? So I'm trying to get them to replace some of this massive sleep debt they probably have. Um, after that, uh, for talking to my buddy Dan Party, probably eight to nine hours of time in bed is going to be best. Although with some athletes, that could be nine or even ten hours, so it could be a little bit longer. Um, but for most of the data, that's probably ideal. Sleep has kind of the the U curve, right? Where if you're super low, you're at a risk for a whole bunch of stuff, and if you're sleep forever or long, there's some data to show you're at a, a higher risk for other things too, which I think that. They're just requiring more sleep, so it's probably a different metabolic process we just haven't figured out yet. It's not necessarily that sleeping more is bad. Um, 
So yeah, usually I try to get people, if possible, go to bed earlier. And then the other key is having daylight exposure. So go for a walk for 20 minutes, no sunglasses, no windows, and you're trying to get those uh, photon receptors in the back of the eye to help reset your circadian rhythm in the SCN. And that can take sometimes up to two or three weeks if they're really dysregulated. So that way they're more awake during the day and then they're sleepier at night. So if they tell me, yeah, I feel like I want to take a nap at 3 in the afternoon and I try to go to bed at 10 p.m. and I'm wide awake, probably a good chance their circadian rhythm's all hosed up. Yeah, there's no doubt. I mean, Mike Ormsby, there's a lot of people that are looking into sort of that, you know, yeah. chronobiology and stuff. And it's fun to look at that kind of thing. Uh, I guess my thoughts quickly on sleep before we move on is people who are overtrained and overdoing it, right? So in our group, let's let's assume it's mostly the sympathetic type overtraining. You can't turn off the sure. background adrenaline. So they have a hard time. The, the lag time to get to sleep is increased. So if you're having a hard time getting to sleep and you're training five days a week for two hours at a time in the gym, you might, you know, you might be sort of overtrained in that way. And why does that matter? Well, to Mike's point about hormones, I mean, especially as you age, uh, a lot of the growth hormone release, like you talk about a 24-hour sort of diurnal rhythm, um, as far as I know, this this data still holds, these data, but GH release about 90 minutes into sleep. Uh, yeah, and and sleep. if you have a lot of background epinephrine and you, you know you, you can't get to sleep and you really could be missing out on one of the nice growth hormone surges during the day. I think that's been overemphasized as far as mass and that kind of thing. But um, you don't want to sacrifice it either because by the time you're middle age, you're not getting much GH release through exercise. I've seen that myself in the lab, not just my data, but other people's data that I was a subject in the studies. I'm like, oh my God, you know, once you're in your mid-30s, you're not getting much GH surge from exercise like you did in your 20s, um, certainly in 40s and beyond. So sleep becomes that much more important for things like leanness uh, and the things that growth hormone might be able to do for you. Um, yeah, and I just think a lot of it has to do with the background epinephrine. So GH, epinephrine, some of these hormonal mechanisms you know, are off. Um, and that, again, that's one of the reasons why if you, if you suspect that you're undersleeping, HRV, like you said, is big and even just sleep quality, like how satisfied, maybe sleep satisfaction is a better way to say that, you know, if you're normally a five or a six all the time in this past week, you're like a three and it's, it's more than a, one or two nights in a row. Yeah. You're just programming yourself, right. To get poorer progress. I mean, there was that, that paper that came out. I, I saw it was all over Twitter just a few weeks ago about they compared the five and a half hours of sleep group with like a seven to eight hour group. And over a, I think it was a 12 week training program, the group that got adequate sleep just lost more fat. They just straight lost more fat. So yeah. interesting. Two good comments on that too. There's a, a study from a couple of years ago that showed when you fractured someone's sleep, so you woke them up every hour, they didn't get out of bed. They just had to hit this alarm that their body's ability to use fat as a fuel dropped by like 50%. Oh, so yeah. massive yep. difference, right? Compared to the group that just slept. And these are uh, same time. So same duration, eight hours in both groups. So changing the quality made a big difference. If you want to measure it, I think the best consumer device is the aura ring. So shout out to Hapri and all the guys there. And then on the HRV, I'll just have them log a little scale how their energy level is in the morning. And if I see that that's super low all the time, it almost always correlates with less sleep. 
So that's a good crude indicator to use for people too. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, the next over or under question about getting unstuck is over or under eating. And we talk about this a lot on here, so we'll probably be kind of brief here. But a lot of uh, people, they think they're eating a lot. No, you're not. Uh, yeah. <laughs> because your hunger is driven to keep you in homeostasis, right? You get hungry to maintain your body weight. So if you want to be a bigger person, bigger man, bigger woman, then you have to eat like a bigger man or a bigger woman. And that means eating when you're not hungry. And the way I always tell athletes is, you know, listen, I, I'm not telling you to eat until you throw up. That's stupid and counterproductive uh, or until you're nauseous. But you have to eat more. And the usual tricks, right, you call them dietetics tricks or whatever you want, but they're pretty standard across the board is drink calories, you know, fat in your protein shakes because fat is, you know, calorie rich, nine calories in a gram, not just four like carbs, uh, protein, stuff like that. I like dried fruit, right, because they, they dehydrate a lot of the water away and you end up with very concentrated uh, phytochemicals and micronutrients, full fat granola, portable snacks. You have to take stuff with you and you should be eating whenever you can. I know people will say, oh, what about a refractory period between protein synthetic curves? You know what? Just eat, damn it, right? Take the food with you. Eat a lot. Uh, you might be you know, eating four times a day. You might be eating six times a day. But uh, I like Phil's approach, which is just barrel forward. In fact, Fortune and I wrote an article once on T Nation about that, just reckless weight gain, you know, and there are lots of healthy fats that you can use, olive oil and avocados and canola and things like that. I And let's face it, full fat dairy, I'm not going to be worrying about a young, a young man's heart disease, right, when he's 20 years old and he's desperate to gain weight. I'm not going to have him drinking skim milk or trying to make gains on chicken breast and broccoli. That's stupid. So instead, say... You know, I'm going to eat as much as I can instead of trying to count, compute every calorie because that's what a lot of bodybuilders will do. I want to overeat 352 calories per day. Uh, okay, <laughs> that's not going to help you. Uh, life, right? sleep, and all these other things we're talking about swings too far up and down. You know, Eat heroic amounts of food. Um, I did a behavior modification project on myself when I was in San Diego as a grad student. I tried to eat 4,500 calories a day every day for three months and i could tell you that was very hard um to give you an example of what that might be that was six servings of oatmeal with six cups of milk and six pieces of toast for breakfast you know for lunch i would have six burritos so i was eating things half a dozen at a time to get up to 4500 and i would yes i was drinking some of my calories and and that kind of thing but when you hear people boast about eating 12,000 calories a day I sincerely doubt it. I always laugh. You'd have to eat with a snow shovel and live on the toilet, sit on the toilet all, all day long. Um, now, could you do it with Big Macs and sh chugging Pepsi? You might might be able to. Uh, and let's face it, sometimes you do have to dirty it up a little. I like kids' cereals. You know, shovel it down. You're hungry again 90 minutes later. A lot of the things we, we tell the Gen Pop not to do, you might reverse, right? Like, yes, yes, drink calories. Yes, eat the kids' cereals, stuff like that. Um, you know, so you're you're hunger hungry more, and with some of the changes in the marijuana laws, you may start to see some of those cannabinoids end up in supplements. I actually I saw a little bit about this news bit about this a few weeks ago. Finally, we may have an effective appetite stimulant uh, because a lot of the appetite boosters now I think are junk. Yeah. Uh, so <clears throat> thoughts? Yeah, no, I 100% agree with with all that. 
I mean, many years ago, I got up to 3,800 to 4,200 calories per day consistently for two, it was about three months. And oh my God, I stopped doing it because uh, I, I was doing nothing else and I was going broke and <laughs> I was right. good at the time. Good point. And yeah, it was, it's kind of crazy because, you know, your metabolism will actually go up a little bit as you overeat. Right. I remember yeah. asking John Brardy once about this and I'm like, what do you do with like the really skinny bastards who just eat all the time, but their metabolism keeps going up. And he's like, at some point you will out eat your metabolism. <laughs> yep. Yep. I'm like, Oh yeah. Um, no, I agree with all that. And then the other part too, is that if they can blend, um, vegetables into shakes and stuff too. So to try to get more micronutrition because, mm -hmm. That tends, it's a double-edged sword because you're eating more, so you have the potential of getting more volume in different types of foods. But if you're really pushing the envelope, broccoli is just, you just don't have room for it just because of the volume of it. So blending, adding uh, micronutrition that way uh, can definitely help too. So yep. yeah, and on the <clears throat> marijuana, the cannabis laws, they're hopefully changing, but the FDA again, that's trying to crack down on any CBD production. So even companies where CBD is legal, they've kind of cracked down, and they're trying to change the agriculture law again. So as oh, of 2014, uh, hemp was considered an agricultural product because the THC in it is so minor. So you can produce uh, compounds that are less than 0.6% THC. You can sell them in every state. But they're trying to possibly change that. Again. Right. So no, that's right. The politicians. That go through. Yep. Uh, one last bit before we offer some tips for everybody because we're kind of winding out of time. Um, I would not actually overdo the fiber and the protein, right? So oftentimes in muscle sports, particularly bodybuilding, people are eating large amounts of protein and fiber. I once had a young man say, Doc, I'm eating 350 grams of protein a day. Why am I not gaining weight? And I said, because you're eating 350 grams of protein a day, right? You're so full and it's so filling and you need to focus on, you know, get yourself a gram per pound of protein. That is excess for most of us. And the rest of your time should be on the fuels, you know, fats, healthy fats and carbs um, and not overdoing stuff like uh, fiber and protein, right? Because you, then you're shooting yourself in the foot, I think. Yeah. Quick comment on that is I've had a few people, especially guys, I've actually scaled back their protein. So even a 200-pound guy had only had 150 grams of protein just to give them enough room to add more carbohydrates. Yes, right. Because they're going to have more than enough protein. They're going to have high amounts of insulin. They're not breaking down a lot of protein. They had more than enough to recover. They weren't sore. But if I bumped up their protein even by that 50 grams, I just couldn't eat anything else. Yep, yep. It's, it seems weird, but yeah, too much protein will backfire. Yep. Okay. So here's the tips. I'll throw mine out, and Dr. Nelson can add his. So if you are stuck, um, I would suggest you just have to think like a scientist, right? You have to study yourself. There is something, there is some variable in your life that you need to monitor a little more closely. So some of the ways you might do that would be journaling, right? So keep a food log, something like that. You might not be eating as much as you think you are. Now, I'm going to take it a step further. Don't just talk about, you know, like journal, like your appetite or, or let, like literally food log, but have a monthly little journal discussion with your training partner or your coach, right? So it'll force you to go back and analyze it because I know in my career, 
there have been times where I would meticulously journal things, but I wouldn't really go um, interpret and you know analyze them as much as I should. So don't just mindlessly journal. Go back and look and have someone else like discuss it with someone about once a month. I wouldn't do it too, too often. That brings me to my second point. Short-term goals lead to large-term goals, right? Long-term. So about every four weeks, you might want to do something like that. Have a little journal discussion about your training volume versus how much you're really eating. Um, or uh, think about that maybe I like 16-week goals, which are four-month goals. I know – was it, I can't remember if it was Dave or Jim, uh, we're, we're talking about year-long, you know, macro yeah. cycles, uh, but at least four weeks, I would say. So, you know, you're, if you're not meeting your monthly goals for strength or body comp or something like that, then you're not on track to meet your four-month goal, your 16-week goal, right? Something like that. Uh, I like an arrow chart, you know, where you, you draw an arrow up a piece of paper, or it could be down if you're with fat loss, but essentially on one end of the arrow, you start with where you are now. At the other end is your final goal, and it's got to be realistic, right, as far as like how much weight you want to gain in 16 weeks. Maybe it's six or eight pounds, whatever it might be, of some quality mass. Uh, and then you cut the arrow in half and then write down how much is that as far as what you would weigh. And then you cut it in half again, right? The lower quarter you create and the upper quarter. And these give you like quarterly short-term goals and if you're not meeting those at the one month marks then you're not going to reach your your long-term goal right so and again a lot of these things journaling short-term goals uh and then monitor we've talked about all these different things right hrv uh appetite on a seven scale in your training log or motivation to train sleep satisfaction maybe it's your rpe right your ratings of perceived exertion are they are they are they just sky high all the time? Maybe you're overdoing it, you know, because it just feels heavy. It feels hard, stuff like that. And then the scale as well. Um, but those would be my low cost or or free tips as far as monitoring. What about you, Dr. Nelson? Yeah, I would, I would agree with all those. That the first step I always think of is awareness, right? And so a lot of people just don't even really are aware of what they eat, even though they think they are. <laughs> so just logging that initially is probably enough taking photos sometimes is enough you know with some people i'm like okay we're gonna take a period of a week and you're gonna buy a scale and you're gonna you know accurately weigh everything if we need to get to that level of right. a resolution right. um which happens sometimes you know because we've all had clients where you're looking at them on paper and you're like this makes no sense it's like what am i missing you know but it's not the client's purposely trying to lie to you they're just there's some level of awareness they're just missing somewhere accuracy so that's yeah accuracy movement right so i do use like a fitbit or garmin type watches then how much do you walk around sometimes i may even put a heart rate strap on them during exercise to see are they going too hard or they're not going hard enough just different things like that to try to um, see where they're at i agree with you you know monitoring recovery aspects uh, one of the other things that I stole from my buddy Ben House, too, is I'll actually physically program them to do something that they enjoy. I got a, a consult with a guy a while ago and super busy entrepreneur. And I said, what do you do for fun? It's like, well, I don't really do anything. I said, well, what would you like to do? It's like, well, I have a guitar in my room that I never play. I'm like, all right, your goal for this next week is to play guitar for 10 minutes twice. Like, but that's not going to help my fat loss goals. I'm like, well, 
not directly, but you, you can't be working all the time and stressed out of your mind all the time either. You, know, you gotta have some time to just down-regulate and, and relax also. Mm-hmm, creative and, stuff. Yeah, that side of the equation gets, gets missed a lot of times too. Okay, sounds good. All right, we're out of time. So there you go. Hopefully some tips for everyone to get unstuck. And we'll see you next week. See you. Hey, listeners. Have you seen the store at ironradio.org? There are three halls in the store. One for Phil, one for Fortress, and one for myself, Dr. Lowry. And they're thematic. So you can go into our Halls of Iron store and choose based on your goal. If you need something to learn or read or something nutritional, you can look in my store, uh, Lonnie's store. If you want something about injury prevention uh, or competition, then take a look at Phil's Hall of Iron. And if you want something about motivation or daily training, Fortress's Hall has what you're looking for. There are some fun, heroic descriptors uh, as you browse through the stores. We try to make it a little more fun than the average boring online store. And whether you're a novice lifter or someone more experienced, you can take heart that you're not wasting your time. The things that we put in each hall of iron are actually based on our own recommendations. Protein powders that we know to be good, uh, knee sleeves, wraps of some kind, things that Fortress uses in his own training. Uh, The stuff you you see, you know is good. This way you don't waste time. So check out the Iron Radio store at ironradio.org and um, let us know what you think on the forums and certainly you can request products and we will uh, screen them before they go in. So thanks for listening. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org store. Uh, We also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.